and welcome to The Mental Matchup, a podcast where we hope to shed light on one of the hardest competitions an athlete will ever face, the matchup against their own mind. I'm Kat, and today I have a second conversation with Emily Weibel about the brain, and in particular, brain health. We chat about neural adaptions that we see in the brain and in behavior that occur because our bodies are built for survival in any way possible. Um, This is really fascinating. I think, you know, what people deem to be maladaptive behaviors are really adaptive and serve their purpose until they don't, which, you know, in the case of trauma, disassociation, it's very, very fascinating. Um, I am so grateful that she came on not once but twice to chat about not just her experience but what she's learning about and what she plans to do with her learnings. So without further ado, let's get right into it. Emily, welcome back to the Mental Matchup. Um, after some scheduling, some dogs eating cords, all the fun stuff, we have finally made it to, I wouldn't necessarily say like part two of your story, but like an educational episode, for lack of a better term. To kick us off, can you give the audience a refresher about who you are, where you are, and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be able to kind of build off the last episode and focus on um, some more of my expertise. Um, That's not just my personal experience. So um, I am currently a PhD student in behavioral neuroscience, and I teach courses that are undergraduate courses um, at university. And then also um, I was a rower at Washington State University. So I was a college athlete, went through all like the mental health things to navigate my own personal mental health. Um, So it's like really cool to be able to have um, an area that I'm exploring and like trying to build the knowledge of mental health in general and that you guys are letting me do that here. I'm so excited. Um, I Okay. Where to start? I know before this, I was like, this is my plan. And then we start recording. I'm like, huh, 5 million questions pop into my head. I I think the first place to start is like, what is our, what is the brain? What is our brain? What does our brain do? Yeah. So um, to kind of break it down a little bit, one thing that I always think is interesting is that people hear like the brain and they're like, or like they hear neuroscience and they're like, oh, wow, like, you're really smart. You know a lot. Like, the brain is really complex. And it's like, I mean, yes, it is. It truly is. But there's ways to break it down that are way more simple than people, like, tend to do. Um, And so I like to think of it as the brain is kind of this, like, condensed form of our body, where we have our fingers, we have our hands, we have our arms, our legs, and they all do different things, but they're all still part of the one body. And so, and the way that one, like if I injure my right knee, then I'm going to walk a little bit differently to compensate for that. And it's going to then lead up and affect my hips and all these other things. And so I like to think of the brain in that sense too, where if there's something that happens, there's going to be kind of a trickle on effect as well. Um, So the brain, I mean, it 
it drives, you know, our motivation, it drives um, our knowledge, it drives the functioning, the basics functioning of our body, and it brings everything kind of together in a very beautiful and complex way that um, is, I think it's really interesting. And um, it can fully be really intimidating as well. So my goal is through this discussion to kind of break it down. So maybe it's not so intimidating. Yes. Yes. The brain does a ton of things. Um, so I guess like, and I don't know if this is like your area, but when I think of the brain and like things I've listened to, things I've read, like a lot of people tend to like split it, like your mind and your brain are like two like they they work together, but they're separate. And then like the mind body connection, like what, what's your take on that? Like scientifically? Yeah. So this is kind of funny because I was just approached um, by a university to build a, a class um, on, um, to basically be like a biopsychology class for honor students. And they wanted to, to name it like the mind and, or the mind, brain and body. And I was talking to my advisor and she was like, we're not separating the brain and the mind. People do that too much. And because like your mind is derived from what's going on in your brain. So I have tried to think very um, often and like, especially leading up to the podcast of like how to really break down my thoughts on how separating the mind and the brain can become a little bit sticky because I think that there is a tendency to be like, oh, well, like in my mind, I think this and it's like, OK, but if there is something structurally going on in your brain, if there is something that in that system that is not working, um, for lack of a better word, correctly, then that's going to affect your mind. And so it's not really fair to fully separate the two, in my opinion, because the mind is reliant on the brain itself. Got it. So, so with that, like, I guess my, my question, I don't really know how to, my next question, and I don't really know how to frame it is like, you form, and please correct me as I butcher these things, you form mm -hmm. like neural pathways, right? Like based, like based on responses to things and they yeah, you're not like, okay, I'm on the right page. So I am saying this right. And then like your body, I want to say like not builds a pattern, but builds a way to respond based on like past experiences. Mm -hmm. So with that, what I find really fascinating is like you form like throughout your life, right? Like, so I'm, I'm only like 27, but I have 27 years worth of like these pathways and like building, rebuilding, unlearning, relearning, how, how does the brain, like, how can you unlearn something and like unbuild an unhealthy reaction and like rebuild it up in a healthy way? Does that make sense? It's like, so I'm trying to simplify it and no. like not make it complicated, but it's like so hard to. You... <laughs> yeah, you did a good job on that. Okay. And I'll, I can break that down a little bit. So basically you were asking, um, with the gist of it, like we have the development and things happen and then there's adaptions that we make that might not be super effective and helpful to us in, in like building a quote unquote healthy lifestyle. Right. 
And so the way that we do kind of change those pathways, it depends on the person. So a big way, common way to do it is through therapy. Um, that can be done in different ways. Um, and to challenge um, kind of the thought patterns that have been um, reinforced through those experience, past experiences and, and the way that you respond to it. Um, what also medications? What does like, what does like the therapy route look like? Like, do you have like an exam? I mean, I know like, you know, we're not perf- like, we're not doing therapy here or anything like that, but do you have an example of like a practice a therapist might do with their client to like create more effective pathways or? Yeah. So can okay. I break it down a little bit more? Oh, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So like we said, so from day one, you're born, right? And your brain, like your body, is growing and developing. You're building, you have all these connections, and each region of your brain is also continuing to grow. We all, I think it's very common knowledge, I hope, and kind of, I don't know, I'm in a microcosm, so maybe it's not common knowledge, that your prefrontal cortex, so the front area of the brain that like has a lot of the control of like the rational decision-making and all that kind of stuff, isn't fully developed until... The general cutoff is 25, but we also have learned that it continues to develop even into the 30s. And so with that, um, not only in your brain, like your body, are you building these new connections and growing that, I guess, like to simplify it a little bit, that muscle kind of, um, which is to note, it's not a muscle, but um, just to kind of relate it to the body. But the brain is also doing this thing called pruning. And so what happens as you develop and like into your childhood and as you grow up, there are almost too many connections. There's too much going on. And so the brain kind of takes away some of the pathways to make it even more efficient. Um, It's like if you have a city and you have like a million roads that are crossing into each other and then there's just traffic everywhere, it makes more sense to streamline it sometimes. And that's why we have highways that just do the straight connections that are a little bit faster. So if someone in childhood is has a major injury to their leg and they have to have surgery, right? Then as they grow up, they might have impact of that where they might be not be able to run as efficiently or do that kind of stuff. And there might always be some kind of consequence, but if they go through physical therapy to train the muscles around it, then it's going to be less impactful later on in their life. You catch early and you're able to address it. Kind of same thing with the um, brain as well. So if there is a stimulus in childhood or at any point that is stressing the brain to an overload and the brain then has to adapt in a way that's going to say, okay, for my survival, I'm going to use this pathway instead. Um, then what happens is that that pathway gets built up, like you said, And to change that, that's where we go to therapy. Therapeutic techniques that are included in therapy, um, we see like cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, all this kind of stuff. There's different other specialties. And basically what it is doing is depending on the therapeutic style, um, you're working with an individual to kind of challenge those pathways. So if I to have like a very, I guess, simplified example. If 
I go home every single day and I immediately go to my couch and I just sit on my couch for four hours and I'm not happy. I'm not having fun. Um, then to challenge that behavior, it's going to be like, okay, well go home and maybe try this instead or do these other steps before you go home. And so there can be behavioral change. There can also be changes of how you think about things. So if I come into a situation and I'm really, really frustrated and I just start to go down a big spiral, um, the therapist might direct me to say like, okay, you're going down the spiral. How can you identify when that spiral is going on? Um, are you able to respond and have different thoughts and like maybe identify different ways of thinking for that? Um, or you like just identifying the spiral before it happens in general can be really helpful. What also is helpful in the context of going to therapy and also mental health is medications. And different medications are going to be helpful for different people. And not everyone needs medication necessarily. Um, just like when you have an injury, like if I sprain my ankle and it's a pretty light sprain, I'm pretty responsive to my, my body's really responsive to it. I don't necessarily need, maybe I'll take ibuprofen here and there, but I don't need like heavy pain meds or heavy dose of anti-inflammatories, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. No, I'm following along. I have a question, okay. but I'm holding on to it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So kind of similar with the brain of like, someone could have like a, a stress that they incur that like, you know, it's going to be like a little hiccup and they might not need meds for it. Cause it might not be a long-term thing. Um, or they might need meds for a little bit. That's going to help. What most medications do as we are like common medications for, um, mental health in general is not necessarily increase the neurotransmitters that are going to like fix you. It's not that for most medications, um, most common medications. Instead, what it's doing is the, the mechanisms which they're working allow for increased neuroplasticity. So it makes it easier for you to create new pathways. Not necessarily, it's not like you're not taking them being like, oh, I'm fixed now. That's why it's really, really important if people are taking medications to combine it with therapy um, or some kind of behavioral change or cognitive change, because the medication itself is not what's changing it. It's just making it a little bit easier. It's just an assist to be like, okay, I'm going to get to you to a point where it's going to be easier for you to make these changes, not making it for you for most medications. Got it. My question is with those medications, like... Well, I guess you kind of answered it, but like, they're not, they're not these like fixes. You have to do the work. And as soon as you kind of stop the medication and those get out of your system, like you kind of go back to that neutral state of like where you were operating before in terms of like neuroplasticity. Yes. In terms of neuroplasticity. So it's not that you stop taking them and it's like, you go back to where you were before and you're thinking in the same ways and having the same problems. Yeah. If you have, if you've done the work, if you've done the work, exactly. But if, and some people might need that can a little bit longer than others. So some people might be on medications for longer, shorter, it kind of depends on how how they're reacting. And the same thing too, is that medications are going to work very differently for different people. So it's really important to advocate for yourself. If your um, physician does recommend medications, if it's not working for you and 
to say like, hey, there's not a change. I think a very um, important and kind of controversial practice that some people approach is like, if someone's taking a medication and you get to a point where like it starts to work and it's like, okay, this is great, wonderful. And then you're like, okay, I don't know if this is working anymore. We're talking to your physician and saying like, what do I do with this? Like letting them know, because there are so many different types of psychiatric medication that are out there. There's so much research that's going into it of different changes. And so it's super important to like advocate for yourself, try something else if it's not working. Um, and maybe sometimes that just looks like, okay, I don't know if this is working anymore because things have been going well. Maybe they're going to recommend that I just decrease my dose for a second, see if like things change and like, maybe it actually is really working and I just don't notice anymore. And then when you decrease that dose, it's going to be like, oh, wait, I, I need that again. <laughs> so yeah. working with your physician is like super, super important. And again, telling them that it's not working is huge. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I had to, I had to switch way back when, when I was put on medication, because I was not reacting, like, was sleeping, like, 18, just not good, and I was like, no, like, we need something else, and I, like, spoke up, and it definitely made a difference, um, and I know so many people, too, who have been like, I don't think this is working, and, you know, it's like, go talk to the people who prescribed it to you in the first place, and see, like, what their thoughts are. I'd like to take a second to talk about Morgan's Message, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Morgan's Message was founded in July of 2020 to honor Morgan Rogers, who is a beloved daughter, sister, and fiercely loyal friend. Morgan's Message strives to eliminate the stigma surrounding mental health within the student-athlete community and equalize the treatment of physical and mental health in athletics. We aim to expand the dialogue on mental health by normalizing conversations, empowering those who suffer in silence, and supporting those who feel alone. To get involved, to find out more, or to just follow along, you can head to morgansmessage.org or find us on Instagram at morgansmessage. Let's get back to the episode. like to know like is there any I don't know everyone's different and every drug is different are there any downsides that we know of to being on medication like this for long periods of time like what's kind of like what are you learning in terms of yes everyone's different but is there like an optimal kind of cutoff is there are there long-term effects on your brain for does it become reliant on certain types of medication? That's such a loaded question. I guess we can talk about like more like mental health, right? Of like these like neuroplasticity things. Yeah. I mean, so I personally am not super well-versed on the long-term consequences. I know that in general, we are still researching a lot because having access to meds that are actually addressing mental health is still a really new field. I mean, there's so many things within mental health in general 
that are continuously being updated and we are having so much more research and knowledge in it. I think one thing um, that a lot of the research is trying to do now is not necessarily apply um, or try to relate and like have better knowledge of how the symptoms people are having um, are kind of showing up within the brain. So um, this is getting off track of your question, but um, one of the things that is that we look at in the DSM-5, which is the diagnostic um, manual for psychiatric disorders. And there's a lot of overlap in it. There's a lot of things that happen that's like, okay, well, this could be depression or like this could be bipolar or this could be this or this. And so having a right diagnosis is really important for meds, but there's a lot of individuals when you get into things like autism or um, the like um, borderline personality disorder or bipolar disorder that aren't necessarily getting diagnosed accurately the first time around. And so when we look at the brain, we're trying to identify and break down things from not just, okay, this is this disorder, but breaking it down of this is the symptom someone is having, and this is where it's showing up most in their brain. And so what we know is that there's one symptom of like rumination, and we have a solid idea, or I think pretty solid, there's a decent amount of research on it, of where that's occurring in the brain. And so what that allows for is like targeted, um, more targeted therapies for that. But in terms, sorry, backtracking, in terms of the long-term effects, we don't quite know quite as much, just to emphasize that it's still pretty new. There are some meds that um, can be a little bit more risky in terms of long-term. Um, really, I recommend always researching your meds and looking at the side effects. Anytime that you do research med, there's going to be a lot of side effects that are listed. Just as long as you have a doctor that you do trust um, and are communicating with them, like they should be able to acknowledge and address like your concerns about any of the side effects that are going to happen and explain them. Um, and also, if you're really concerned about one, then maybe shifting it. In terms of the dependence on meds, there does build to be some dependence, which is why if you ever do decide to go off your meds, working with your physician is really important because um, if you just stop, what's going to often happen is that there's really bad side effects that are just going to be like miserable to deal with, mm -hmm. such as like, super dizzy, super nauseous, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so like working again, working with your physician on that is going to be super important because there will be some kind of like physiological dependence. So your body is being reliant on it, which is why if you just go cold turkey off these meds, you're going to feel bad. Um, so titrating it down and gradually decreasing that dose is going to be important um, in terms of that reliance. But otherwise, are there probably long-term effects? Yes. But also, do we want to see some effects where the brain's changing a little bit? Yeah, because if it wasn't working in the first place and there was some maladaptive behavior or not super efficient pathways that were happening, then we do want to see some changes. So, yeah, yeah, I think the side, the side effects, definitely important to know. I like am giggling because I feel like you see those ads on TV, not for like necessarily like antidepressants, but like any type of drug. And it's like people are laughing and happy and living their lives. And at the end, it's like diarrhea, death, like death, death. And yeah. you're just like, nice. Okay, cool. Um, And they're like talking so fast. So I think like doing research on, 
you know, the medication you're taking. I think it's just important in general. My take has always been like, if you're putting it into your body, you should probably know what you're putting into your body. Like you only get one body and one brain for the rest of your life. So like being very deliberate with the things you're feeding it. Um, I do want to like quickly dip our toes into the water of like more specifically kind of talking about how like how how depression how anxiety PTSD like how brains can look different if that, if that makes sense and then like yeah just like the actual like ongoings of like someone who is dealing with like bipolar disorder how their brain is acting chemically and whatnot versus like an I don't know if normal is like an appropriate term you probably have a better one because it you know everyone's different but does that question make sense it does and I so full disclosure I so I do a lot of neuroimaging research that's like my focus um my focus is not as much necessarily comparing like depression to like someone who has no symptoms or anxiety Mm -hmm. or PTSD um but in terms of the like physiological changes that happen especially with PTSD I can talk pretty well on that let's do yeah great um what happens with PTSD is your um nervous system I think a lot of people have heard of like the fight flight freeze we also have fawn and so have what wait say that last one again there's another one that's called fawn and um basically there's been different definitions for it that I've heard there's some people that have said that fawn is more of like the um like taking care of other people and like distracting I've also heard that fawn is more of a and the way that I've been taught it is that it's more of a it's continuous um, kind of state. So let me get back to that one. Okay. What happens in fight, flight, and freeze? And when you get that activation within the system is it's like historically, you know, evolutionarily, I see a bear. What am I going to do? Everything kind of kicks up in your system. Um, you, your body starts to reallocate the blood flow so that you aren't necessarily performing as many like digestive functions. You are running and sprinting and trying to get that energy to those muscles. Um, and additionally, you are also not as worried about, um, like, okay, is the stove turned on or, you know, um, it's like, cause it's like going, it's almost like, I feel like I've heard it to like, hunter gather like you're just so focused on the one thing everything else fades out yes and so in that system with ptsd um that system gets triggered of fight 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 freeze and it kind of stays in there so there's this event that happens that really kicks up that that nervous system and there is an inability to return back to your like homeostatic level. So like basically your neutrality. What we also have learned is that if someone, and we don't necessarily know the mechanisms 
specifically as to why this happened, but there's theories. So if you do get into a fight and you're injured, there is, and you keep going and keep going, and you get to a point where you have expended all your energy for the most part, and you are like working off of street reserves at that point, your body and your brain start to get to a state where it is trying, there's like that almost dissociation that happens where it's conserving energy to survive as long as possible, but not as connected to the environment now, not as connected into like any physiological cues that are going on necessarily. So like pain or any of that. Um, And it is basically your body turning into a state of, I am just trying to exist for as long as possible until I can no longer exist. And that is what can be seen sometimes with PTSD. Um, When I was working in behavioral health with eating disorders as well, it's kind of in that system as well, because you get to a point where there is complete energy depletion and your body, your body is built to survive. Your brain's built to survive. So anytime that there are what we call these like maladaptive behaviors or pathways, it's really pretty smart of your brain because it's actually trying to be really adaptive to help you exist and survive. But once we get out of that threat situation and once we get out of to that safety, it doesn't always acknowledge that. And it's not always mm-hmm. able to register that I'm safe now, that I can change these pathways. I don't need these maladaptive pathways that help me exist anymore. I need to go back to that homeostatic level. So in terms of what we see physiologically within the brain between um, specifically like depression and PTSD is that there is decreased kind of connectivity in some areas of the brain. And this connectivity idea is that, so um, there's different regions within the brain, right? And what we've noticed is that they can be like physically separate from each other. So it might be on like in the front of the brain, one area might be in the back of the brain, one area might be more towards the center of the brain, like the midline, but they're all being activated at the same time. And that's what we call connectivity. And so basically we see that the relationship between these areas, they're working all together. They're working in unison, which is beneficial. And within individuals with depression and PTSD and other um, psychiatric conditions, there's an alteration in that connectivity typically seen. It might be, we have different networks that we know about. The most common ones are um, the uh, default mode network, which is basically when you're at rest, how is your brain working? It's kind of like, we also like the resting state kind of idea. Um, and then there's also the salience network. Um, and we also have this other network called the frontal parietal network. And so within these psychiatric conditions, there's a change in connectivity, typically such that, um, I mean, obviously either increased or decreased, but there is some kind of change depending on the condition and some kind of change within different air, uh, um, networks, depending on the condition as well. What has also been started to be explored um, is this idea of variability within the brain. So 
Um, I think some people have probably heard of heart rate variability, which is within your heart, not necessarily directly your brain, but it does impact the brain because the brain is reliant on blood flow. And so within athletics um, and general health, we have observed that heart rate variability, which is the way in which, so when you have each heart rate um, or each heartbeat, it's the difference of like the peaks in the heartbeat um, for each consecutive beat. So basically, is there variability in my heartbeats and is it still working? Like my heart working. So you don't want too much variability because that would be tachycardia. Um, but you don't want too little variability because that means that there's not a lot of um, adaptation going on. So basically with the just that heart rate variability in general allows to like reflect this, the body system that it is able to respond to changes really well. Within the brain, there's a new kind of research that's kind of going on to look at what we call bold signal variability. So the bold signal is blood oxygen level dependent. And what it reflects is not only just where is my brain active, so from a neuronal state, but it also shows that oxygen exchange. So it's really based on the oxygen exchange. So are the cells in my brain and is blood getting to that area where there's energy exchange going on and activity going on? So it's what we call a, it's, it's reflective of the neural system, but also the cardiac system. So it's a hemodynamic response, um, which is really cool and interesting because again, we're connecting that neural system to that cardiac system for the whole body function. And so what we want to see in terms of the bullet signal in many ways is this variability as well. Uh, is my brain able to adapt to changes? Is there more variability there and essentially more flexibility um, or is there less? And it's, again, brain research is still like in its infancy stages compared to some other researches or areas of research. Um, but the idea and like what has been early finding so far is that when there are psychiatric conditions, there's generally less variability within the brain. So um, there's ways to improve that variability as well. Um, you know, different researchers are looking at how heart rate variability connects to bullet signal variability. So if you're a little bit heart rate variability, that would be reflective of bullet signal variability in bullet signal variability, um, which is would then relate to why physical activity can be really helpful to uh, mental health. So that's kind of a gist of it as well. De very detailed gist. gist. Um, yeah, sorry. My no 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 no. My brain is still my brain is still processing it, but it's all very fascinating, right? Of like learning about like why we do certain things or why your body reacts a certain way. Like it's very interesting. Um, we are at time. Is there anything else you feel like is important for the audience to know or that you want to share from what you've learned? Um, I think the biggest thing is that so with the general gist that mental health comes from the brain, right? Um, taking care of your brain and your body is super important. And you can't, when it gets to a part point where it is becoming like these thoughts, behaviors, and your mental health is becoming intrusive to your life, seeking help is super important. It's not something that's just, that's not your fault. That's not your decision. That's not you doing something wrong. 
Um, I've had kids that I've worked with where they've had high suicidality and they're like, well, I just need to do better. I just need to be better. And it's like, no, my friend, there is something physically going on in your brain that you, we are working to help you with, but no matter how hard you try, it's not something that you are going to be able to change. Um, and so really emphasizing that, that there is nothing like wrong with you. It is not just you being lazy or not wanting something when it gets to a point and I mean, many times, but also when it gets to a point where it's so intrusive in your life um, and that there are these physical things behind it. Um, also working with health professionals is super, super important and seeking out help and talking and being open. And also, again, like I think we've said this in the past episode, not every mental health professional is going to be a fit for everyone. So if you find someone and you're like, hey, this isn't working out, go and find someone else because it might be a better fit for you. Um, but that's it. That's the gist. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I appreciate you coming on for a second time and kind of breaking these things down for us. Um, this was awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I hope that um, it didn't get too much in the weeds, but... I appreciate um, the chance to kind of speak on this and it's really enjoyable. So thank you. Another huge thank you to Emily for coming on and sharing, you know, not just sharing, but really allowing me to kind of ask ask a few questions I had around the brain, the brain health, how the brain adapts, and trying to better understand, you know, how my brain works, and and maybe you learned a few things along the way. Um, you can find her at Where's Weibel on Instagram. If you listened and thought, wow, I have, you know, I am a professional source of knowledge in something and you feel inspired to come on the mental matchup or you may have a story that you want to reach out and share on the mental matchup please reach out we always love sharing unique stories from any individual who is willing to talk about their experience with mental health um you can reach out to submission at morgansmessage.org And last, but definitely not least, another huge thank you to Morgan's Message for presenting this podcast. We would not be here without them. If you are interested in learning more about Morgan's Message, if you're interested in getting involved, maybe both both things um, are speaking to you, you can head to morgansmessage.org or you can find us at Morgan's Message on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, you name it. It's at Morgan's message. With that, we'll see you next episode. Thanks for listening.